This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I want to do is look at the idea of knowing in Aquinas and the idea of believing in Aquinas. And faith will come under the category of believing. Uh, but religious faith uh, for Aquinas will be a special category of believing that has some qualities of knowing. So I want to begin by looking at just generally what Aquinas means by this idea of an act of faith. Uh, to have faith is to believe in certain truths. Uh, Christian faith, you believe in God, that God exists, that uh, uh, God is three persons in one. Uh, you believe in things such as uh, uh, the Catholic, uh, Aquinas is a Catholic, we believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, believe in the incarnation, the second person from the Trinity became uh, man. Uh, so, so you're believing in certain things, and that's one way we use the word faith. Another way we use the word then is just to speak of the content of the things believed. So you might say uh, the Christian faith. When I talk about the Christian faith, that's not an act that you are making. It's the contents of the acts that various Christians have made. Another uh, pretty predominant meaning of faith is trusting in God. Uh, so you trust that God will take care of you. Uh, trust uh, that uh, God will answer your prayers. And we speak about people having strong faith in this sense. Uh, so my concern is with the first meaning of the word faith, right? So the second two, the content of the faith, and just trusting God. Although trusting God will, in the end, become important in a way. Uh, but first of all, we are concerned with faith as in an act in believing certain truths, truths that, in fact, are revealed. There is a, a further distinction. Uh, that Aquinas would make following St. James between living and dead faith. So faith is just believing in certain truths. Uh, living faith means that you love God above all. And that doesn't necessarily follow just because you have faith. Right? Uh, you can have faith and yet lack this charity as St. James indicates. Uh, but our concern is really just looking at faith, whether or not somebody has charity or not. So Aquinas will talk about different ways that we can think of something being true. And the strong contrast here is going to be believing, and believing will be the category under which faith falls. And on the other hand, knowing. So those will be the two broad categories that uh, we are looking at. So we can distinguish between what you believe, if you're looking in the act of believing, and the reason that you believe it. Now, the English word believe is going to be a little bit more broad than we're using it here for Aquinas. So you can say about believing anything that you think is true. Uh, so if you were asked, well, do you believe that 2 plus 2 is equal to 4? You'd probably say, yeah, I believe 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. Aquinas would say, well, really, you know that 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, right? Not that you believe, uh, because 
And now I mean, the reason to believe in the English sense of the word believe is that you see it, right? that you see it. Whereas in faith, what you have is the mind doesn't quite see it, but nevertheless, you are believing in the sense of holding firmly to something. So what's this idea of seeing it? Well, sometimes we say seeing is believing, right? Uh, well, the idea is uh, seeing with your eyes is believing, I suppose, right? But when I'm talking about seeing, I'm talking about seeing with a mind, which you could have, say, you're studying math or something, and there's some proof or something, uh, and you don't understand it, and your professor is trying to explain it to you, and finally the light goes on, and you say, I see it. Uh, that's the way we speak. We, we speak about seeing things. Well, you're seeing things not with your eyes there. You're seeing things with your mind. Now, Aquinas will talk about two different senses in which you can see something with the mind. One is a kind of immediate grasp of something. Terminology used uh, in the Latin is per se nota. This doesn't really have uh, a, a great translation, uh, but uh, one might say it's known through itself. Uh, and this is something that Aquinas mind doesn't take a proof, even though sometimes it can be fairly difficult stuff. Uh, so, for instance, uh, he gives a pretty easy example that a whole is greater than its parts, right? You don't need a proof to know that a whole is greater than its parts. You see it with the mind. Uh, we won't get into details here, but he has the idea that it has to do with the relation of the concepts involved here. Whole is one concept, part is another concept, greater than another concept. But when, the, when you know all the concepts and see how they fit together, the mind just says, yeah, that has to be the case. Now, that's a simple example to give you an idea how sometimes this uh, sort of seeing in this sense isn't always easy. He says uh, that uh, it is uh, immediately known, if you will, or known through itself that uh, an angel is not in a place. Uh, he says this is known only to the wise, but the wise still know it immediately. Once they understand what an angel is, and that's the real difficult part, right? Uh, once they understand what an angel is, and once they understand what a place is, they understand that angels are not going to be in a place, right? So you don't need proof for these sorts of things. The other is seeing by way of other things. And this is a kind of proof. Mathematics probably be you know, uh, the most straightforward way that we might look at this. So the idea that uh, you know, the interior angles of a triangle are equal to right angles is a popular instance of this. Uh, so you have uh, certain things that are you know, postulates or uh, basic things that are known with the mind, those can kind of fit into the first category. And then you have proofs, such as proving that the interior angles of a triangle are equal to right angles. Uh, and clients have the idea, well, this can happen in all sorts of different areas. Uh, so in biology, for instance, you might say, well, uh, whales are mammals, uh, and mammals have hair, so whales must have hair, turns out. 
they typically lose most of their hair, but uh, uh, but nevertheless, they at least often are born with hair. Right? So uh, so uh, I guess they they go bald like I'm going bald. But anyway, that's the sort of uh, the kind of argument where you you uh, make a proof for something, and both of these planets could say fit in this category of seeing that with you grasp it with the mind, right? With the mind, you see how it is the case. But oftentimes, probably more often, there is no sight, so to speak, of the mind. Uh, there's evidence for a position, uh, but not enough to count as seeing. So this happens to us all the time in our, in our daily lives, right? So suppose your friend uh, is, uh, hasn't talked to you for a while and passes you by uh, in the hallway without even looking at you, and you say, Man, he's angry at me, or she's angry at me, right? So, so you've done that kind of reasoning where you look at something that was sort of immediately known, namely that the friend hasn't talked, the friend walked by you, and you reason from that to a certain state inside of him that he is angry with you. But in the end, you could well be wrong about that, right? There might be other reasons. Maybe he's going through something difficult in his life and uh, hasn't told you about it, but uh, because of that is distracted or something like that. There could be various explanations. So there's evidence that he's angry, but it's not conclusive evidence, right? I see that uses the term thinking for this uh, in the sense that, well, you know, I'm thinking about, I suppose, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I think that something is the case. I'm not sure. I think it kind of matches up uh, the English translation of thinking works pretty well with regard to that. Although, again, maybe we can say I think 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, but I think we'd probably stay away from speaking that way, right? If you think, well, you're not quite sure, right? If you think you're not quite sure, and that's the way Aquinas is using the term, right? If, if, if uh, you think something, yeah, there's evidence, but it's not conclusive evidence. Aquinas gives three categories with regard to this, uh, if you think something. One is doubt, where you really, uh, you're not quite sure one way or the other uh, where you're going to fall here, right? Uh, you're really withholding judgment entirely. Another suspicion where, uh, well, you think there's pretty strong evidence leading towards one view, but you know, you're not really quite sure. And the final category he calls opining, uh, which is the strongest, right? So now you're really pretty darn sure, but still, it's opinion, right? So again, if you're going to use that translation, right? It's opinion, so it's, you're still not quite certain with regard to it. But the interesting thing about believing is it goes a step further, and you make the move to make the ascent. You're going to affirm that this is the case. So believing doesn't fit in the category of knowing because you don't see it with the mind, right? You might have some evidence for it, right? You probably will have some evidence for it, but you're going to be fitting into the category just by the evidence alone, you're going to be sitting there at doubt, suspicion, or opining. You won't have committed yourself entirely to it. Believing pushes yourself over where now you've committed yourself to it, even though the evidence is not conclusive. 
right? So you push yourself over to this level of permitting yourself. But the idea here is kind of says, look, the mind by itself can't make that move. The mind by itself can make that commitment only in those seeing instances, the two categories of seeing that we call knowing, the mind can make that commitment. When you've got doubt, suspicion, or pining, the mind, being honest, says, well, I don't quite know. I can't make that commitment. So Aquinas says what happens is we can make a choice. On Aquinas' view of things, we, we have a knowing power, we might call uh, reason or intellect. Uh, and that's what we're talking about here, uh, for the most part. But we also have a desiring power, it goes by the name of the will, right? By which we make choices. Sometimes we talk about free will in English. And so uh, that would be a, a pretty a reduced idea of the will that you know, what Aquinas has, I think, the, uh, the notion of uh, free will that we have today. But I think it's related in any rate, right? So we have a desiring power. Knowing power, you're kind of trying to understand the world, right? So, Desiring power, you're well, moving out to the world in some way. You, you desire ice cream. You're, it's not just knowing ice cream, you're, you're wanting it. You're, you're moving out to it. And Aquinas says, uh, well, one of the things you can move out to is knowledge, right? You're curious. Why do you come here tonight? Right? You're curious. So you have a desire, you wanted to know something. Right? And in that want to know, the desire, the will, can push you over sometimes, right? Push you to, from the state of merely opining or suspecting, to hold into something firmly, right? So that now, I believe, as Aquinas is using this terminology, means not just that I'm pretty darn sure, but yeah, I think it's the case, right? So I've committed myself, you might say, to thinking that this is the case. And this takes more than the mind if you don't have the evidence, right? In those first two cases of knowing, you've got the evidence, the mind alone can do it, you don't need to push from the will. But uh, in these other cases, where the evidence is there but it's not conclusive, you need a push from the will. Uh, well, what kind of reasons uh, might push the will, you might say? Well, you've got a desire for the truth. But if all you want is the truth, you're, you know, honestly, you're going to say, well, I don't have quite enough for committing myself to the truth of this. Uh, well, sometimes uh, there might be reasons of convenience uh, or uh, reasons of pride uh, that uh, uh, somebody is uh, confident in their own abilities, for instance, right? Uh, we, we speak about opinionated people in this way, right? And they say somebody's opinionated, meaning he's really darn confident about his own ability to get at the truth. So, so here we have, he, he pushes himself over. He doesn't really have the evidence to know the truth, but he pushes himself over because he's so darn confident in himself and his own abilities, right? So with his will, with his desire, what his desire here is saying, well, I'm so darn good. Uh, so if my mind thinks that this is probably the case, well, it is the case, right? So the will pushes him to make the commitment uh, because of his arrogance. Or they can be kind of self-interested uh, reasons. But ultimately, there have to be reasons that are somewhat, I think, connected to knowledge. 
Uh, it might be because, and this can be very important for faith, because we trust someone else's judgment. Okay? So, a lot of times, uh, we trust other people for what's going on in the world, say, news reports, right? So, uh, you may have heard a news report about something, and you say it is the case, and then if you were asked, well, what evidence do you have? Turns out that uh, you didn't see what happened. It took place in Europe, or it took place in the Middle East, right? But you still say, you're still committing yourself to saying, yeah, that is the case, right? You're believing. Why? Because you're trusting someone else. You're trusting the media. Maybe we shouldn't be trusting the media all the time, I suppose. But, but we do. We push ourselves over to this level of belief uh, because we're trusting someone else. Uh, and that could be the case in, in lots of other areas as well. Say science, for instance. Uh, we believe all sorts of things about the world around us. We believe, say, that uh, you know this lectern up here is made out of atoms, right? Uh, but few of us, probably none of us in this room, have actually done the reasoning to see that that is the case, right? There might be the reasoning where you could get to knowing, but most of us haven't done that, right? But we believe it because we trust the scientists who have done it, right? We trust the scientists who have done it. Uh, or, say, the DNA codes for certain biological traits. Right? Again, we probably say, I believe that's the case. We committed ourselves to that, but we haven't done the reasoning to figure that out. Right? We trust scientists who tell us that that is the case. And that's the case even a lot of times for the scientists themselves. Right? They haven't worked through it. Right? Biologists haven't worked through all the uh, chemical reasoning that they would need to know the DNA codes for certain biological traits. Some of them have, of course, uh, but many of them have not. Uh, now, if you're going to trust another person's judgment, that person has to be trustworthy. And Aquinas says there are really two aspects uh, of making someone trustworthy. One is that they have to be knowledgeable in the area. Right? So you're going to trust the biologist on matters of biology. Uh, you're going to trust uh, the uh, mathematician and matters of uh, mathematics and so on. They have to be knowledgeable in the area. Uh, just because somebody knows a lot about physics doesn't mean, uh, say, they know uh, anything about politics or something like that. So you wouldn't necessarily trust a physicist if, he has, uh, if he's expounding on politics. So that's one thing. The person has to be knowledgeable in the area. The second thing is the person has to be honest. Right? So even somebody who's knowledgeable in an area, if they're dishonest, then you shouldn't be trusting them. So you know, you need to get your, your car isn't working, and you need to get it fixed. Uh, and so, so you come to me and say, what's wrong with the car? Well, that's a mistake, because I missed the first, first category. I don't have knowledge about cars. Right? So don't go to me. But you go to a mechanic, and you ask the mechanic what's wrong. And he tells you what's wrong with the car, but uh, as a matter of fact, he's just trying to make some money out of you. So he tells you a lie, and uh, ends up getting a lot out of you. Right? So you want to trust a mechanic because he knows a lot about cars, but you want an honest mechanic. Right? So that's the case in any field. Uh, you need these two aspects. You need somebody who's knowledgeable and somebody who's honest. 
Now, we need some evidence that this is the case. We need evidence that the person is knowledgeable. We need evidence that the person is honest, right? So in looking whether the person is knowledgeable, you might see, you know, maybe he has some degrees in a certain field or something like that. Honesty, you're going to have to, uh, you know, know something about the person's character uh, in order to do that. Now, I think for the most part, uh, we presume people are honest unless we have evidence to the contrary, right? So, but uh, it might be wise sometimes to uh, check up, so to speak, see whether this person has a reason why they might be deceiving themselves and really might be a reason uh, them to deceive you, right? They're deceiving themselves, they have a dishonesty with themselves, and so they have a dishonesty with others. Now, if an authority that's somebody who's knowledgeable and honest. If an authority is knowledgeable enough, we can trust this person more than our own reasoning, right? So remember, with our reasoning, well, we might be not quite sure uh, about the truth of the matter, uh, but then uh, an authority might push us over. That's this act of will, where, oh, now I trust this authority, and I'm going to commit myself. So again, maybe there's some you know difficult mathematical proof you're working through in class, and you can't. My kids are tails of it. Some of you aren't good at math, and maybe you say that about the most basic mathematical mathematical theorem. But I think we all relate to this in math. Even the uh, you know math majors like Brian Math, who introduced me as a math math major, right? But but even he can relate to. Wow, I don't understand this this uh, theorem or uh, this proof or something like that. And we all experience that in math and in other areas. But now there's this professor who really knows the material and uh, you know he's honest and he tells you it's the case, even though you might say it makes no sense to me. You say, but I believe, right? I believe. So we actually trust his word in this case more than our own reasoning because he is so knowledgeable in this area. All right, so this brings us to faith. Okay, so we've got these two broad categories, knowing, which is seeing, and believing, uh, which is, uh, well, there's also the category of thinking, uh, where uh, you haven't committed yourself. But the two where you've committed yourself, knowing and believing, and believing takes thinking and pushes it over the edge, so to speak, uh, to the level where now you commit yourself. Uh, because of some act of the will, because of some choice that you make. A choice that has to do, to some extent, about uh, wanting to know the truth. Right? So faith fits into this category of believing. It is not seeing, right? You don't see with the mind the things that you believe with faith, right? So there's inevitably a certain darkness about faith. You know, looking at Aquinas, I was talking about religious faith, uh, uh, Christian faith here, but it could be applied to other faiths as well, uh, uh, perhaps, right? So if the thing is seen with the mind, then there is no faith. Uh, Aquinas gives an example uh, that uh, God exists. Okay? Uh, for those of you who are Catholic, uh, many Catholics don't know, but it is the case that at the Council of Vatican I, 
the church declared that uh, it's a matter of faith that you can prove that God exists. Okay. Uh, so, doesn't mean most people make make out the proof, but uh, it is a matter of, of faith uh, that we have the ability to get this seeing with the mind about God. It would have been that second category of seeing, the second category of knowing. It's not immediate, uh, but uh, you can work through knowledge of things that you do have to come to absolutely conclusive knowledge that God exists. Okay? That would be knowing. It wouldn't be believing. It wouldn't be faith. Okay? So, so what happens to, say, a Christian who believes in God and now works through all these uh, proofs and, and finally one, one day the, the light dawns and he says, ah, I see. Okay? Uh, the see, the seeing with the mind. Does he have faith that God exists anymore? I said, no, he doesn't have faith that God exists. Right? He knows that God exists. So uh, faith is believing, it's not knowing. I mean, he has faith in other things. Uh, he still has faith uh, you know, that uh, God is three persons in one, uh, that God uh, you know, uh, was, uh, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So he still has faith. He doesn't have faith in this one matter that God exists because he sees it with his mind. He knows it. So that's how strong the contrast is between this knowing and believing and faith being an instance of believing for clients. Now, there can be evidence for what is believed by faith that doesn't lead to this level of seeing with the mind, that doesn't lead to knowing. So you might, for instance, just have uh, a more popular level understanding that well, why is there something rather than nothing? Oftentimes people say this, right? Well, there must be a God because otherwise uh, there wouldn't be anything at all. Have you given a proof about the existence of God? Well, maybe if you worked out the details and really understood all, uh, all the ins and outs, that could be made into a proof. But probably for most of us, it would just be Suggestive evidence, right? So, uh, suggestive evidence that doesn't lead to anything that's conclusive. Uh, and so you've got evidence for a matter of faith, but it really, if you didn't have the faith, you would be in this category of thinking. You'd be opining, suspecting, something like that. You wouldn't have been pushed over into holding firmly that this is the case. Or say that we as human beings have a soul and the soul is immortal. I think we can find some evidence that this is the case. Not clients again actually think that would be a matter that you could actually prove. But even if you can't prove it and get to that category of seeing, uh, I think uh, a lot of us could get to the point where saying, well, yeah, there's some evidence that this is the case. But still, you need to be pushed over to the believing side and that would bring you to faith. Sometimes, on the other hand, there's no evidence, right? no evidence uh, of a particular matter of faith. So again, we've got, sometimes there's so much evidence that it could be, if you understand it well enough, leading to knowledge, in which case it would stop being faith. Sometimes there's some evidence that you still need the faith. Sometimes there's no evidence, such as, uh, Aquinas would say, that there are three persons and one God, uh, that Jesus Christ is fully present in the Eucharist. Now, faith, as an instance of believing, is 
believing, as the English word is, is most often used, and trusting in someone else. Right? I mentioned that believing could be just trusting in yourself, an opinionated person, right? But oftentimes we use the word believing uh, more narrowly as I believe another person. And we talked about that already. In this case, the other person that you're believing is God. Right? Uh, so just as we believe the scientists who told us that this lectern is made out of atoms, so we believe God when he reveals things to us. So we believe that Jesus Christ is both God and man, that our souls are immortal, that God created everything, and so on. Now, in this case, God most completely fulfills those two requirements of believing. Another person. Remember those were, but the person should be knowledgeable and the person should be trustworthy. Well, can't be God for being knowledgeable. He's all-knowing. Okay? So God is all-knowing, so if you trust that math professor more than yourself because he's so darn knowledgeable, so you should trust God more than yourself because he is very knowledgeable. And also, he is completely honest, right? God is not going to deceive. So God meets the two conditions of believing somebody completely. So that we can put more confidence in him than we put in any human authority. Uh, and indeed, more than uh, our own reasoning ability. So God can never make a mistake. This leads to a very interesting case for believing for clients. So all these other cases of believing, you commit yourself to one side or the other, but you still don't have absolute certainty. So you commit yourself uh, you say, I believe this lectern is made out of atoms. You commit yourself to it. The evidence didn't lead you there, unless you happen to be one of the scientists who works it out, right? The evidence didn't lead you there. You may have you know, done some lab experiments in class once that gave you some suggestive uh, evidence that it might be the case, right? But in the end, you believe, you trust the other scientists, right? Uh, you believe it's the case, but you still acknowledge, well, I'm not absolutely certain, are you? Right? But Christ says when it comes to this religious faith where the person that you're believing is God, now you've got this absolute certainty. So it actually shares something with knowing. So the knowing, like, that the whole is greater than its part is the sort of thing, well, yeah, I, I'm certain that this is the case, right? And if you work through proof, you can say, I'm certain that this is the case. Okay. Uh, the believing, you commit yourself to it, but you don't have a certainty, except in this instance. In this instance, you commit yourself to it, and you end up having the certainty, even though the commitment comes through the will, because ultimately the person you are believing is all-knowing and all-trustworthy. So we might define faith, then, as believing unseen truths, unseen as in you don't see it with the mind, right? Unseen truths of revelation, that is, what God has chosen to tell us human beings. So that's what you're believing, and then you add into this definition the reason why you're believing 
because they come from the word of God. Because they come from the word of God. That's uh, the reason, or that was the what you believe and the reason why you believe. In this case, it's not because you see it with your mind's eye, it's because uh, it comes from the word of God. Uh, so you have the object believed, whatever God has revealed, uh, and that might be various things. I've given some examples as I've gone along here, uh, and the reason for believing. This spills over into that third meaning of faith that I began with, uh, which was trusting that God will take care of me, trusting that God will answer my prayers. Right? Uh, part of what you believe by the Christian faith is that God is provident. Indeed, Aquinas says there are two things essential to the Christian only two things. We believe lots of things, but there are only two things essential. God exists, and God takes care of me. God exists, and God takes care of me. God is provident. God is, takes care of me. Right? And that's one thing that you believe. Uh, and uh, if you believe this, that overflows into trust in God, in a sense, uh, that third meaning of faith that we get, that uh, I mentioned at the beginning. So knowledge and faith have something in common uh, because uh, they have this certainty associated with them. But at the same time, they have much that is different. Right? The certainty of knowledge comes either because something is known through itself or because of conclusive arguments. Both have what might be called a sense. That's Aquinas' terminology, or the translation typically given. That is this committing yourself, right? That I, that's the way I've been talking about it. Both have this committing yourself, uh, and that's clear in general with belief, but faith goes beyond most belief because it has the certainty of knowledge. And all of this is different from thinking about where you haven't committed yourself, right? That, or the thinking, the term thinking, where you haven't committed yourself, you're just suspecting. So the difference between faith and knowing is going to be found primarily in why you have this firm assent. Knowledge is because you see it with the mind's eye, so to speak. Faith, the evidence by itself is inconclusive. If there is evidence, sometimes I said there is no evidence, right? But often there is. But it's inconclusive. If you ever got to the conclusive level, again, Aquinas says, well, you, you stop believing that, now you know it. Right? So the evidence might be there sometimes, but it's inconclusive. It should by itself, but the evidence by itself should only lead to thinking. So what leads to the certainty is that reason why that you are trusting uh, in the word of God. You are believing because God has said so. But one might wonder, and this is sort of where I'm driving at, uh, primarily in this talk, is but don't we still have doubts when it comes to faith, right? It might be that uh, you know you're, you're talking to a materialist, and he gives all sorts of reasons why we don't have a soul, and uh, if, if we had anything like a soul, it wouldn't be immortal. We just stop existing at our death. 
and nothing beyond that. And you hear these things, and you might begin to worry. Well, is he right? Or uh, when we look at this, uh, again, if you're Catholic, that Jesus Christ's presence in the Eucharist, the evidence of the senses, Aquinas assures us, show us only what appeared to be bread and wine. So the evidence, if we look at just that, apart from somebody arguing with us, might lead us to say, well, is it really the case? Or someone might be worried, say, that scripture contradicts history. Uh, a common example of this is the census of Quirinius, uh, which is the census uh, that uh, led Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem, right? It's the Roman census. Uh, Luke says the first that Quirinius gave, indicating there was more than one that Quirinius gave, uh, this is sometimes taken to contradict the historian Philo, uh, who was a Jewish historian of uh, the late first century. Uh, Philo only mentions one census of Quirinius, and he places it after the death of Herod, which could not be the case for the census that Luke is talking about, since if you combine Herod Luke and Matthew, Herod is alive at the time of the birth of Jesus, right? So someone might say, well, gee, you know, Philo tells us something different from Luke, and you, you might have uh, some worries there. You might be familiar with Cardinal uh, John Henry Newman. He has this saying, uh, interesting, uh, 1,000 difficulties do not make a single doubt. 1,000 difficulties do not make a single doubt. He uh, was an Anglican and uh, struggled for years, uh, eventually converted to Catholicism. Uh, and in his story, his conversion, he says, well, after I converted, I haven't looked back. I firmly believe he says, of course, there are difficulties, but a thousand difficulties do not make a single doubt. So he's saying, I have not doubted any. And that's the certainty of faith, right? So whatever these worries might be, if one has faith, one says, yes, but I know, not in the sense of seeing known, but in the sense of certainty knowing, I know what I, have, I hold by faith. And so these worries might be difficulties, but they can never be doubts, they can never lead to doubt. We might have a kind of emotional anxiety, uh, which uh, we call, uh, which I've been calling worrying about something, right? Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you are questioning, which is the doubt, right? Questioning in the mind, you are still firmly holding to it. You might be holding to it in this way. Yes, it is true, but I don't have any idea how it's true. Right? Uh, that's how faith might be. So faith can be very dark at those moments, right? And one might think one is doubting, but if one has faith, Cardinal Newman is saying, not a single doubt. Lots of difficulties, not a single doubt. So what removes doubt from the difficulty? 
or what's the difference between a difficulty and that? That's sort of the question that I'm asking. Up until now, I've been playing Aquinas. Now I'm just sort of reflecting on sort of what I know about Aquinas and uh, and uh, what Newman's does, and, and try to figure out what on earth can Newman mean? Is a thousand difficulties to not make a single death? Right? When it comes to matters of thinking, this is when you haven't committed yourself, right? Uh, matters of thinking. Difficulties seem to be at least partial doubts. So, I'll give a couple examples here. One would be dark matter. Okay. So, you're familiar, you've at least heard of the physicist notion of dark matter. Right? Uh, well, what's the evidence for dark matter? The evidence for dark matter has to do with the movements of the stars and galaxies. Uh, basically, some stars and galaxies. A lot of them are moving a heck of a lot too fast uh, than could be the case from the gravitational sources that we know are available. Right? Uh, and so, uh, scientists posit dark matter, which is another gravitational source, which will then explain why these stars are moving faster uh, than they should be moving, given what uh, we see out there. Uh, unfortunately, so far, at any rate, the dark matter has no other known effects, right? It has no other known effects except making some bodies move faster than we would otherwise expect them to do. So the evidence for it is actually, well, kind of sketchy. So some physicists hold other views. Uh, probably the most common other one is that uh, uh, Gravity actually increases its force as distance uh, uh, and, and great distances you'll know, find gravity stronger. But anyway, we don't need to get into that. But the point being, this could very well lead to a doubt, right? Because what you have in dark matter is really only thinking, right? Uh, even the uh, the best scientist uh, is is going to tell you, well, yeah, we really don't know that dark matter exists, right? So the physicist looking into it. We don't know, we have some evidence, but it turns out, well, it's kind of weird that something could, should have only one effect, namely gravity. It has no other effects, and so gives us no other evidence of its existence, and so you might have doubt as a, as a result from that. Now, if you have that doubt, you might hope so, for some further evidence arising, but until it does, the doubt remains. And that's what physicists are doing. They're doing all sorts of experiments trying to find some other effect of dark matter. So far, no luck. But, uh, but they're, they're looking for it, right? So they're holding out hope that there will be other evidence for this. So that's a science example. Another example, a uh, historical example, there are some people who think that uh, Joseph Stalin was assassinated. It turns out there isn't a whole lot of evidence for this, um, but then there isn't a whole lot of evidence against it either. Right? The evidence for it, well, near the end of his life, he was uh, very suspicious uh, of doctors uh, plotting uh, against his wife, uh, so-called doctor's plots, where he had uh, many doctors uh, arrested. Uh, and another bit of evidence is that those in power around him had plenty of reason to kill him, right? uh, namely that uh, they can gain the power that he has. I mean, 
was uh, absolute uh, dictator of, of Russia at the time, and they contained the power. Uh, another bit of evidence, uh, kind of negative evidence, is we don't really know what condition in the ants uh, killed him. Looks like it could have been something like a stroke, perhaps, but uh, we're not quite sure. Uh, part of the reason we're not quite sure is because he had arrested all the best doctors in Russia at the time, and so to investigate him, that's true. And then they went to the prison, uh, and they asked this doctor, suppose somebody has such and such conditions. Uh, you know, this is a doctor that Stalin had arrested, and he gave his opinion on the matter. Uh, he didn't know he was diagnosing Stalin, uh, but uh, he was. At any rate, the evidence against this is that well, Stalin was just generally a paranoid person, so who cares if he was arresting doctors? He was arresting people all the time. Uh, so if he's arresting doctors, and uh, it could have been the case that doctors uh, you know, did something that uh, led to his death, yeah, but he's, he's just a paranoid person. And what about the fact that the people in power around him had plenty of reason to kill him? Well, they had reason, plenty of reason to fear that any plot they had to kill him would be uncovered, because, indeed, he was always looking out for plots, and he was always arresting people uh, who uh, he, uh, sometimes quite randomly, uh, who he was worried about. Right? And after all, he was 71 years old at the time, uh, not necessarily in stellar health, so there's evidence against it. So, again, if, if someone thinks, and we're looking at the category of thinking, that Stalin is assassinated, they might hope that some evidence might come up in the future, just like the, the person hopes that evidence for dark matter will come up in the future. But barring that coming up in the future, we have this doubt, okay, right? So difficulties lead to doubt if what you're starting with is thinking, right? You're starting with thinking. So why, when you have faith, does difficulty not lead to doubt? Well, first of all, let's consider a little bit what counts as evidence for something. Uh, one thing that counts as evidence is that uh, some known effect uh, could have the thing you're thinking about as a cause. That's dark matter, right? A known effect, namely the speed of the stars that are moving too fast, is evidence for a cause, in this case, dark matter, that you're positing, right? So that's evidence. And you can have the opposite. Some known cause that gives rise to certain kinds of effects could be uh, evidence for something, uh, such as the desire for power is evidence that there could be plots to kill somebody, killing kill Stalin, right? So, so the examples I gave gave us Either you have an effect that you're looking for some cause, uh, and that can be evidence for the cause, or you have a cause that typically has some effect, that's evidence for the effect. Uh, evidence could be just somebody that you trust, right? Uh, that's actually an effect, knowledge in the person from the thing in question, right? So if you trust them, it's because you think they actually know something about the world, their knowledge is an effect, right? So, so it actually fits under the category of the others, right? Evidence, another kind of evidence could be uh, uh, several instances of a general occurrence. Uh, so sometimes people say that hagiography makes up stories about miraculous, 
say that it's high yeah. it's just a, a, a fancy Greek uh, terminology for uh, uh, biographies of saints, right? So, so when uh, people write about saints, they make up miraculous events, not always, presumably, at any rate. But sometimes they do. Uh, it seems like that might be the case. That might lead one to doubt all hagiography, right? Doubt all stories about saints, right? So those are instances of evidence for something, right? So particular instances of people distorting truths about saints lead you to evidence uh, to the view that this always happens or something like that. That's the last example. But even when there's evidence for something, we can often discount the evidence. Even if we don't have knowledge of the opposite. Take, for instance, that the Earth is spherical. Uh, we actually have proofs for this, uh, going back uh, to Aristotle before him. Aristotle gave several proofs for the Earth being round, and I think they're still good. Many of them are still good proofs today. Of course, now we can add to that things like, you know, some people have been in outer space and have seen this and so on. You may or may not be familiar with the Flat Earth Society, which uh, claims that the Earth is flat and there's a worldwide conspiracy to uh, prove uh, or lead us, mislead us into thinking that it's round. And you might think, well, they're just a bunch of nuts. Well, you're probably right, I suppose. But at any rate, uh, they give arguments. And probably the most common argument that they give is called the Bedford Canal Experiments. So the Bedford Canal Experiments uh, involve uh, a body of water, happens to be a Bedford Canal in England, but it can be any body of water that uh, doesn't have much movement, so there aren't waves or, or a flow of current, things like that very much. Uh, you know, it's a pretty flat body of water. So bayous in this particular area, I suppose, would often fit that category. But it also has to be pretty darn long and straight if it's narrow, like a bayou. And bayous cannot be all that straight. But uh, the Bedford Canal, being a man-made thing, was indeed straight. And so if it could go on for six miles, and uh, if you have six miles, there's actually enough curvature of the Earth where you shouldn't be able to see in the end of the six miles. Okay. So uh, the Bedford Canal experiments put some flags in the water and put all the flags six feet above the water level. And since the water doesn't flow very much, six feet above the water level should be you know, pretty much the same in all the areas. right? Six feet above the water level, then at the one far end, someone with a telescope looks through, could see all the flags, and all the flags were completely level. So, well, if in fact the Earth was curved as much as we claim it is at any rate, or even at all, uh, but it certainly as much as we claim it is, you shouldn't have been able to see the last flag at all. And you should have seen the flags look like they're getting shorter and shorter because they're going down over the curve, right? Uh, but in fact, that's not what we seen. Now, you hear this, and maybe this gives rise to power. But probably not. It's probably just a difficulty that gives no doubt. 
for for you, right? And why not? Well, not because you thought through it and figured out what the problem is with this experiment, because most of you probably have never heard of this experiment before tonight, right? Uh, it is because, on the other hand, just because you say there must be something wrong with this experiment, right? That's how certain you are that the Earth is spherical, even if you don't have Aristotle's proofs or the other proofs. Maybe you're just believing the scientists, but you still have much more certainty of the scientists than the Bedford experiments. Something must be wrong with it. So this is only apparent evidence, one might put it that say, they call it apparent evidence rather than uh, really conclusive evidence or even true evidence. It might also be the case that you can discover the error involved. So one is just assuming there is some error here. Right? The other is you can actually uh, discover it. Now, what the scientists say is the error is uh, atmospheric refraction. And so. Uh, this has to do with uh, the fact that the density of the air is greater the closer to the Earth that you get. Uh, and depending on various features such as humidity and uh, barometric pressure and so on, this can lead to uh, refraction of the right light rays uh, coming out things so that they will actually bend along the pattern of the Earth, not necessarily the exact same uh, curvature of the Earth, but they will bend along the, uh, uh, the direction of the curvature of the Earth. So that you can actually see something six miles away which shouldn't be below the curvature of the Earth because the light rays bent as they were coming over in time. Uh, Alfred Wallace, uh, who's uh, known as uh, a sort of second discoverer of the theory of evolution, uh, actually took on a challenge with regard to the Bedford experiments. And he said, uh, all right, I'll, I'll make a bet. I'll agree to this. But we have to do it under these conditions. So the, the initial Bedford experiment was six feet above uh, the water level. Uh, Alfred Wallace knew that if you put that higher, 13 feet is what he required, if you put it 13 feet above the water level, there wouldn't be sufficient refraction. And the 13 feet also allowed us to say that uh, you could actually see the one six miles away, right? uh, because it would still be uh, sticking up enough that you could just see uh, the tip of it. So this, these were his conditions. Uh, and when looked at a telescope that way, you could see the one, third, uh, uh, the one six uh, miles away, but it was lower than the middle ones, which were higher, right? So they actually found uh, the flags went up and then down, right? That's like a time. So in that case, you remove the doubt because you actually show that this was only apparent evidence. But even if you didn't have that, you could still say, you know, I'm going to discount that evidence as apparent evidence because of how firmly I hold the opposite. All right, so we can discount uh, evidence as being only apparent evidence, uh, even if we don't have knowledge of why it is apparent evidence. And 
here I have an example in Galileo, I did actually that with regard to the sun being at the center of the solar system. Uh, the common argument against, which I'm skipping, was uh, the lack of parallax movements of the stars, which now with greater telescopes we, we can detect parallax movement. But, uh, but at the time we couldn't, and it was pretty damning evidence against the idea that the sun is at the center and the earth is going around. I haven't gone into it, but, but it is. Galileo knew it was, but he discounted it, even though uh, he didn't, wasn't able to disprove it. He discounted it as that, well, well, someday we'll be able to discover it. Well, he was right, but he didn't know, right? So he discounted it because of his certainty, uh, because of other evidence, that uh, the sun was at the center. Now, sometimes this is acceptable to discount apparent evidence, as an example of the Bedford Falls, uh, Bedford Canal experiments, right? Uh, can be for other uh, things as well, quite often. Right? It is most acceptable, Aquinas would say, if the person believed is God. So here, even if you do not understand, so this materialist is giving you arguments to make you think that, that uh, the, uh, the soul doesn't exist after death, but you can say, I don't understand Maybe if I looked into the matter, I would understand, but even if I don't look into the matter, I can discount this as only apparent evidence and not true evidence. Right? I can discount it as apparent evidence and not true evidence, just as he did for the Bedford Canal experiments. Right? And maybe if you looked into the matter, eventually you would see what the error is. But it remains a difficulty and not a doubt. Cardinal Newman's idea. It remains a difficulty and not a doubt because you are uh, discounting it as apparent evidence and not true evidence. If you, if you take it as true evidence, then it leads to doubt rather than simply remaining the difficulty. One might come to understand that this materialist is uh, uh, bringing in all sorts of uh, presuppositions into his arguments, and then you move beyond just discounting it uh, as apparent evidence, you come to understand why it's apparent. Since error can come in a thousand different ways, the truth comes in one way, error comes in a thousand different ways, myriads of different ways. Since error really can come in an infinite number of ways, there will be thousands of difficulties. Right? There will be thousands of difficulties. But in the end, thousands of difficulties do not make for a single thousand. Because the opposite is known, not in the sense of seeing with the eye, but in the sense of certainty, by faith. The certainty of the source is what allows us to discount the evidence as only the difficulty, and then certainty of the source is God, who is all-knowing and all-trustworthy.